Concerns about transmitting and catching the coronavirus have led to massive changes in our day-to-day lives. Some of these biggest changes are in our relationship with food and eating. Shopping, cooking, and dining are all different. More of us are ordering groceries online for home delivery. People are stocking up on food more than ever. We're eating at home rather than going out. We're stress eating, obsessing over recipes, and gaining weight. Is this a normal response to a crisis like the COVID pandemic? Or does it indicate a deeper problem? For people who have issues with food and problematic eating, coronavirus-related stress may be making things worse. Organizations focused on eating disorders report their call numbers are way up. Treatment centers are full and waiting lists are long. What impact does the pandemic have on disordered eating? I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a developmental and clinical health psychologist, and this is Life in the Time of Corona. Welcome to episode 14 of Life in the Time of Corona. Today we're joined by Dr. Allison Tchaikovsky, a clinical psychologist specializing in eating disorders. Dr. Tchaikovsky is an associate professor at the William James College Graduate School, where she is the director of health and behavioral medicine in the counseling and behavioral health program. Dr. Tchaikovsky has served as a clinician in both private practice and healthcare settings, including as the clinical director of eating disorder services at Walden Behavioral Care in Waltham, Massachusetts. I've known Dr. Tchaikovsky for most of my clinical career, and she's always the first person I turn to with any questions about disordered eating or weight loss issues. Allie, welcome to the Life in the Time of Corona. Hi, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm so glad you could join us. I always start asking people, with the pandemic uh, several months in now, what are some of the biggest changes that you've been making in your own life these past few months? You know, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking some of the biggest challenges are just the change in routine, just kind of the everyday simple things that, that that make up our lives. So sitting in a coffee shop, going to the gym, taking a dance class, meeting a friend for dinner. Um, so all, all of those things are gone. So mostly it's been mostly changes in just everyday routine, just other things we take for granted. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So right now, there's there's lots of stories in the news and certainly our own experience where there's a lot of changes in how we relate to food because of the pandemic. So there's people talking about there's a lot more stress eating, there's obsessions about some foods like, you know, sourdough bread or banana bread or whatever the you know recipe du jour is. We're buying groceries online for home delivery. We're, we're almost hoarding food. We, we People are holding on to a lot of food or sort of making sure they've got a lot. And people are gaining weight. You know, they're talking about the COVID-19 pounds that people are gaining while while in isolation. Now, now these are maybe risk factors or indicators of an eating disorder, but they're not the same thing. So for people who don't really know much about eating disorders, what's the difference between these sort of pandemic-related eating things that are going on and disordered eating? Yeah, that's a really great question. So in, in many ways, we all engage in disordered eating at some point in our lives. So we all go through periods where we restrict our caloric intake, we might increase our exercise, um, we might become preoccupied with our body and shape. Um, 
disordered eating um, kind of goes over a threshold and becomes an eating disorder when it starts to impact a person's impact. The, it, it puts them at a, a greater risk for a health concern, and it also impacts their functioning. So, so eating disorders, the main eating disorders are anorexia nervosa, which we associate a low body weight, so caloric restriction and being underweight, bulimia nervosa, which is binge eating and then using compensatory behavior, and then binge eating disorder, which is binge eating without compensatory behavior. And what I mean by compensatory behavior is anything that the person does to, to rid their body of calories like purging and laxative abuse. So if we think about the pandemic, I think, you know, I'm seeing different patterns for different people. So it really, it really kind of depends on where the person was before their baseline. So in folks without an eating disorder, I've seen all sorts of things. When I think about um, family, loved ones, colleagues, and, and patients, some people that have never had an eating issue have put on weight. Others, it's pretty stable. And others, I've seen like a third of people, it's been really interesting, and even patients that I've worked with who are working on weight control, where it's been a time when they've actually been able to gain more control. And so what people have shared with me is that they have more control and structure. They're not stopping off at the fast food places as much. They're not getting as much takeout. When they're ordering online, they're able to control it. But that's really only a subset of people. And for others, I'm seeing uh, an, an increase in symptoms, so a worsening. So it's really, it's really looking at kind of each individual, what are their fault lines, what are their trigger points, and, um, and, and what's getting set off for them at this moment. Obviously, we're all under a lot of stress. It's almost too obvious to say that these days. And, and I guess what I wonder about is, how the stressors we're, we're in, we're experiencing now, how they might have an impact on specific types of disordered behavior or disordered thinking. So I'm certainly in my own practice getting a lot more referrals for anxiety. I'm getting a lot of, of clients that I had finished up with years ago coming back. But for eating disorders, I, I guess I wonder what what are some of the specific things about this pandemic and how we're experiencing it that might put folks at particular risk for either developing an eating disorder or for worsening an eating disorder that's pre-existing? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think if we step back just for a moment and look at kind of general mental health. So we're seeing that there's so many pandemics that we're talking about right now. So there's the COVID pandemic. There's uh, so many Americans are hit hard financially. There's a racial reckoning. And then there's, there's a mental health pandemic. So, you know, folks that don't have, that aren't predisposed with a mental health condition are feeling a sense of despair and demoralization and anxiety and confusion and hopelessness. And so so many of us are experiencing an array 
of, of emotions. And for those with a pre-existing mental health condition, there's really an exacerbation. So those with anxiety and depression are experiencing more. The only exception is for, for some that have social anxiety or tend to avoid situations. It's a bit of a relief for some in that way. So, so when, I, when I think about people with disordered eating and eating disorders, I really try to understand what is their unique thumbprint. So there's common themes, but each person has a different thumbprint. And when I think about that, I think about, you know, you've probably heard of the biopsychosocial model, or I know you have as um, because of the work that you do. But I think about I take each of uh, each of those concentric circles, um, the biological factors, the psychological factors, the social environmental factors, and when I think about their their eating um, or their disordered eating, I think about with each of those, what are things that predispose that person to having more difficulty, and then what are things that are triggering the behaviors, and then what are things that are maintaining those behaviors. So for each person, it's unique, and it's really trying to help people tune into what's coming up for them at this moment in time. Yeah, I can, I can imagine how there are certain, some things that uh, are occurring with this pandemic that would really be triggering for folks around eating issues, uh, not just what I'd mentioned before, where we're all sort of hoarding food now, and but even just being in the house all the time, if, if you're social distancing or if, if, you, if you're isolating, you're kind of there where the food is. Definitely. Even. So just environment uh, or even being with family more. Definitely. Many of us are, are there and there's and eating is often such a big piece of family culture and family background, as well as a way to manage the anxiety and stress that may also be higher when we're all stuck together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you touched upon so many important themes that are coming up. Just the idea of we're not out and about, we're not driving to meetings, we're not showing up for meetings, we're at home and the refrigerator and the cupboards are calling to us. So that's a big variable. And I think for people that, you know, that are living alone, different issues are coming up for them as opposed to people that are home with a lot of people where they don't have a moment to themselves or to you know engage in self-care so so again if we go back to what what is the behavior that the person struggles with is it restrictive behavior is it compulsive eating is it emotional eating you can see you know how each person's situation is unique but there are, but we are all experiencing significantly more stress in our life, and that certainly triggers disordered eating. Now, with with treating eating disorders, can you tell us a little bit about how you would typically treat some of your clients? Yeah, definitely. So the the first thing you want to do if if a, a person that um, is working with someone with an eating disorder is to do an assessment. And so you would do a comprehensive assessment. And then based on what you find, you're going to make a determination of do they need a higher level of care. So it's really important clinically that our interventions 
match the level of acuity that a person is at. So if they're engaging in really concerning behaviors and at medical risk, um, we recommend a higher level of care. So the highest level of care is an inpatient. And then the next step down would be a, a residential program. And then there's partial day hospitalization, IOP, and then outpatient practice. So that's the first thing is safety. I'm sorry to interrupt. So IOP is intensive outpatient. Yeah, thank you. Intensive outpatient. PHP is partial hospitalization. On an outpatient basis, the gold standard with eating disorders is that it's really critical to have a team approach. So you're not going it alone. So when you're working with someone with an eating disorder, they will be connected um, with a medical provider, often a primary care provider, a registered dietitian, and often a psychopharmacologist. And so you're constantly coordinating care together. And, and on an individual basis, you're gonna be working on all sorts of things you know, what they're eating, what their triggers are, where they get into difficulty, strategies and skills to handle when they're feeling overwhelmed and to understand their behaviors and interrupt those behaviors. And then just basic self-care and wellness principles. And do you see this as treatment towards a quote cure or is this more of an ongoing recovery model? How do you think of working with these folks? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a big debate in the field. Can people fully recover? And I guess I want to have a resounding um, yes, it is possible. I think there's a, when we think about recovery, there's a continuum of recovery. So the first stage of recovery is not engaging in disordered eating behavior and keeping the, the individual being able to keep themselves safe and healthy is a, is a first step, but there are other steps in the recovery process, and that's moving away from um, the distorted thinking, the body image disturbances, and eventually, you know, when I think about full recovery, I think about a connection with the body, so that where there's not a disconnect, where someone can eat intuitively and in accordance to hunger. None of us do that all the time. So that that's not to be expected, but they can actually take um, pleasure in food and eating and in their body. Um, so I would say that's, um, with eating disorders, we often, often think of a third, a third, and a third kind of as a gross generalization. So there might be a third that are really chronic, a third that get better, but they have episodes that are intermittent. And those first two thirds talk about, you know, this is kind of an Achilles heel, it's with them in some way. And then another third that is on some part of that recovery continuum. It just really makes me think about the role of food in our lives. It's not just fuel. It seems to have so many other meanings to all of us. And somehow those meanings become, I don't know if it's inflexible or particularly problematic for these folks who are developing the eating disorders. Right now, I would imagine that trying to get inpatient or residential care is really hard, uh, given the COVID restrictions and, and safety measures. So what, do you, what are you hearing about folks trying to get 
treatment, particularly now in some ways, there's a higher risk for developing the disorder or higher risk for folks who have the disorders. They may be needing higher levels of care. Definitely. Yeah. What are you hearing that's going on? So I will put a plug in um, for the opening of Walden Behavioral Care in Dedham. So they have a brand new facility, which is now the the largest um, higher level of care facility in the country. And they have, um, I believe it's 82 beds for both inpatient acute care and a residential program. And in speaking with my colleagues at Walden, I know that they are extremely careful. And so all patients need to have a negative COVID test. And then they're in um, an enclosed facility and the staff are required to, to wear personal protective equipment and, um, and are monitored regularly. So I'm also wondering about people who are in the recovery process, who may have some time under their belts. Obviously, everyone's under a lot more stress, which has to raise risk of relapse. What do you think, what do you hear or see that's going on with these folks? Are they able to kind of maintain or are you hearing about a lot more relapsing and what would help people keep to their recovery? You know, again, I think it's variable. I think it depends where they are on their recovery, but I do know that the treatment facilities are full. I mean, they're really full and both in eating disorders and in weight programs and also in mental health facilities. In terms of tips and staying uh, staying on track, I think we kind of go back to general wellness principles that we can really all benefit from. And I, I you know, I often highlight with, with patients and with my students, just some core kind of pillars of wellness that I, th- I think are, are just really important to pay attention to. And so it's focusing on basic things like what are we eating and, and how is, is that food, um, is it nourishing us? Is it helpful? How does it impact our energy, our, how we feel physically, our cognition? So just kind of being mindful about what we eat also movement and exercise you know and i should say with these these first two we've got to be exquisitely careful with certain eating disorders in terms of not being rigid with them so it's got to be we have to think about them in terms of moving them toward health and well-being as opposed to triggering behaviors other other just simple tips that that i think are really important for for all of us is just being mindful of the importance of restorative sleep, um, how, how important that is, and um, regularly engaging in some type of stress reduction exercise just to manage the anxiety that we're all feeling on some level. And, and the, the other three things that, that I often talk about is right now, more than ever, we need social connection. And we're, we're forced to socially distance, but it's really important to know that we cannot emotionally distance. So we need people. One thing that I've been thinking more about is just in, in the everyday choices that, you know, what is going to nurture me versus deplete me? So how much news I want to consume? 
Um, what, what are those small areas in my day where I can make a choice about something that's going to bring a greater sense of equanimity or joy to my day? So those are all really great ideas to help us all, I think, with stress management. And I can see where, you know, particularly for folks who use eating to help manage stress, these are sort of alternatives which really end up working better. I mean, the, the thing about any anything that we overuse, food included, is that it's effective, at least in the short term, for managing the stress. And, you know, I think what you're suggesting, these are things that they may take a little more work in the, in the sort of the front end, but over time, they really do help us, I guess, just be better managed, better self-managed. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, in thinking about people with disordered eating or, you know, anywhere on the continuum, I also want to just mention overweight. And, and I want to be clear that that is not an eating disorder. So, um, overweight or obesity is not an eating disorder, and people that are overweight can even be um, significantly healthier than a person at normal weight or who is deemed underweight. So I want to I want to be clear about that. But some folks that are overweight struggle with eating, and so wherever we are when we're thinking about someone that's working on these behaviors. It's also helping them with basic relapse prevention skills. So going back to what are my, well, what are the behaviors I'm working on? What are my triggers for those behaviors? What are my coping skills that are effective? Who are my supports? If I've needed um, help in the past, you know, professional help, who are my providers? Can I reach out to them? So thinking, you know, again, back to individualizing, what is that person's unique thumbprint and how can we help intervene on, on all the areas that are, that are trickiest for them? Now, a number of folks that I've talked with on the show have talked about this time as both a time of risk, but also a time of opportunity. So are there unexpected silver linings for people struggling with eating disorders? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. Um, and I guess I just want to start broadly and, and I can share some of the things that I've been thinking about. And then we can think about, you know, how one might apply those to an individual struggling with eating issues. You know, for me, I'm, you know how people sometimes talk about during moments when their their heart breaks, that their heart also opens. I think there's a there's a just an awareness for me much more about the fragility of our lives and 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 and, and deep suffering that so many people are going through. So I think it's it's um, I guess if you would consider it a, a, a silver lining, a period of deeper reflection and an appreciation of um, a sense of gratitude for what we do have. And I think a greater sense of presence and mindfulness in, in our day-to-day -day functioning. You know, I've been more aware of need versus want, and um, I'm much more mindful of spending. As I say this, I'm also very mindful that's a position of privilege to even have that awareness. So I just want to um, acknowledge that. But, you know, as many of us, you know, we're not running around and busying ourselves. Um, we're doing other things. So reading, 
more quality time with family. I'm, I'm really trying to, to walk every day. And instead of, you know, hitting the gym, just being quiet with myself, listening to podcasts, walking, hiking on the weekends. So I think those are a few examples of, of how I would think of a silver lining. I, and I guess with, with eating, what I'd come back to, what I've been surprised by with a subset of patients is an opportunity to slow down. And again, the subset of people that have gained greater control over their eating and that have been more thoughtful about what they eat and when they eat and why they eat and taking more time to get outside and move and really practice all the skills that, that we talk about in, in, in therapy. So as we're wrapping up, there are a few one thing questions that I like to ask people. So, so what is one thing that people should take away from our discussion? Well, I would say, you know, be kind with yourself. This is a really hard moment. So be, be kind with yourself and be compassionate. And, and what is one thing that you're doing to take care of yourself? I too am trying to be kind with myself and I'm, I'm trying to, to take the opportunity to, um, to, to be more present with the people in my life. And what is one thing that you think the coronavirus experience has changed forever? Hmm, that is a great question. Hmm. I think there's so much that we took for granted and there was so much busyness. You know, I I think for me, uh, just a constant awareness of the fragility of life, that if we don't, if we don't appreciate this moment right now, you know, it's just hard to know what, what the future holds for any of us. So how stress affects us is as unique as we are. And I think the specifics around this pandemic, the social distancing, the ways that we're changing how we buy and consume food, the, the restrictions in our movements, these are all stressors that are in some ways target people, I think, that are struggling with eating issues. But they're also, like you're saying, there's also opportunities to discover new ways to support ourselves or to strengthen the skills that, that we know already help, help us. And if you're struggling with eating issues, definitely reach out to your healthcare providers. And I'll also put some links to resources in the notes for this episode. This is Life in the Time of Corona. You can subscribe to the show at iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Please rate the show, leave me comments, and share it among people you know. And find out more at my website, saulrosenthalphd.com, or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Saul Rosenthal. That's Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Dr. Allison Cherkasky is a clinical psychologist specializing in eating disorders. In addition to her work directly with clients, she is training the next generation of behavioral health clinicians at the William James College, where she is the director of health and behavioral medicine in the counseling and behavioral health department. Allie, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you. Take care. Do you have a pandemic tale to tell? We're all making the best out of an extremely difficult and uncertain situation. 
Share your stories of hope, of heartbreak, of tribulation and triumph. Reach out through my website, social media, or write to inthetimepodcast at gmail.com. We struggle best when we struggle together.